I wasn't terribly surprised. I thought it made sense dramaturgically. Hello and welcome into another episode of Dramaturgically. I'm your host, Stephen Clark, and today we're joined by one of my closest friends, someone who I've gladly shared the mic with before and whose fierce and unrelenting pursuit of great storytelling alongside for his passion with art and his continu- has continued to inspire me greatly throughout many years that I've known him now. Please welcome uh, the Perth writer, literary master, and today's guest, my roommate, Thomas Blake. <laughs> hello, hello, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. You do me far too much credit. That was a lovely intro. No, I've been uh, very welcome, my friend. Um, as I say, you're one of my closest friends, uh, someone yep. who I share a humble abode with at we the do. moment. <laughs> we do, in and fact, live together. We do, in fact, which is surprising that we haven't uh, managed to record an episode yet, given that we're up to episode 21 now, but what a better yeah, time. That's to- crazy. Well, uh, I mean, you know, 21 is very good number it and is a good uh, number. you know i was waiting when you started this podcast i yeah. said to you i'm gonna wait for episode 21 exactly yeah and uh, i'm gonna talk about this film um although i i don't know if you started the podcast before this film came out or <laughs> if you started it after i'm not sure just a few episodes um, before i think it was like nine plus ten or something okay yeah fair enough <laughs> for uh the younger people in the audience that is a very dated meme uh moving on <laughs> moving on swiftly from that one <laughs> um so tom i sort of gave you a little bit of a warning before this but um as I bring on all my new guests and stuff, as I'm starting to bring a lot of my good friends on, I like to give my audience a bit of an understanding of um, what your film taste is. Okay. And essentially try and get the audience to get to know you and um, criticize you a little bit, but also, <laughs> <laughs> but also in, in, in sort of figure out what, what, what you yep. like. Excellent. So I'm going to, I just have 10 rapid fire questions. Please. Um, we'll, it's called rapid fire questions, but we'll take it as slowly or as <laughs> fastly as we need yes. to. For every Slow, question. rapid, fire. Slow, rapid. Um, all right. So the first one is The Biggie. What is your favorite film? Oh, goodness. Well, you already know the answer to this. I do. Uh, because um, obviously Steve and I have known each other for many, many years. Um, but for the benefit of the audience, my favorite film is the cult classic Withnell and I. Uh, directed by Bruce Robinson, released in the mid to late 80s, mm-hmm. um, starring Richard E. Grant, Paul McGann, and Richard Griffiths. Um, it's an essentially plotless affair uh, that uh, tells the story of two uh, or three men uh, escaping by accident to the English countryside. Um, and it's a film about friendship and the end of friendship and breakups and dealing with weird homosexual feelings that you may or may not have for your friends and the uh, the friends of your nephew. It's brilliant, and it's not too dissimilar from the film that we're talking about today, it's so it's uh, incredibly relevant, and I'm sure that'll yep. come up in conversation. It's actually a great inspiration for the film that yes. we're about to speak about. Uh, both the director and one of the lead actors in the film that we're about to speak about cited Withnell and I as inspiration. So Fantastic. All right, my second question is, you can only keep one of these three films. Oh, no. The Fellowship of the Ring, oh, The Two Towers, or Return of the King? Oh, you're kidding. Oh, <laughs> Well, this question changes probably... I mean, it's essentially, it's what is your favourite. Um, mm-hmm. And it changes. It's changed throughout my life, and it probably changes day to day. I think for many years, when I, was, when I was a lot younger, I think Fellowship would have been the one I would have kept when I was probably... When I first watched the, the films, and probably until the age of about 16, I probably would have said Fellowship. <clears throat> I then sort of, you know, probably for the last the last, last decade or so, have probably probably been a staunch Two Towers defender. But, but these days, you know, having rewatched them recently and uh, loving them, I think 
for all the iconic moments and for all the payoffs and the narrative and what it does for cinema, I think I have to keep Return of the King. Yeah, nah, fantastic choice. That's um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a tough one. Um, but yeah, I think I think you're right for the for the iconic moments alone. I mean, you can't really go wrong with Return of the King. Definitely not. All right, third question: a film that you wish you could see on the big screen. Oh wow, that is an interesting question. I think. Obviously, it would be a film that I haven't seen on the big screen. <laughs> um, I think if I had to pick a film that I would love to see, I've never seen this film, mm-hmm. but I think I think seeing it on the big screen back in the day, you know, I haven't seen it even on on Blu-ray or anything. But I think going back and seeing it, you know, with some of the people that first saw it, I think I'd love to see Citizen Kane on the big screen. Oh, wow. I think from everything I know about it, again, I I confess, I don't know how this holds up with my pretentious pretentious, uh, pretentious hipster critic uh, credentials, but um, I've never seen Citizen Kane. I've seen clips and I know it's considered to be you know one of the best films of all time but i think for the historic the historical uh, significance alone i think citizen kane would be an awesome screen uh, an awesome film to see on the big screen that's fantastic yeah no I've, I've never seen it on the big screen either that's a great choice thank you all right the film that you've watched the most in your life oh my goodness Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, I can't just go to my letterbox because I haven't <laughs> had letterbox my whole life. I've had it since I was like 21. So sadly, there sadly. are generations of kids now that will probably have letterbox from like <laughs> 10 years old and well, will that, know everything <laughs> that they've ever seen. My goodness. I think, I think there's, there's probably two, there's probably three films that could hold that title. And there's probably only one of them's actually any good. Um, <laughs> I think, I rewatched compulsively when I was about eight years old. Um, on before Revenge of the Sith came out, I watched Attack of the Clones maybe a hundred times a week when I was a child because I thought that that was the coolest thing I'd ever seen in my life. And of course, it's we know it's not a good film, <laughs> um, but I think I I watched it every day, several times in a day, um, growing up, just because I thought Obi Wan was cool um, and I wanted to be him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was basically that was basically it. Um, another film I've seen probably more times than I've seen my own mother is Ghostbusters 1984. Mm-hmm. I think that's probably the one that actually factually takes the crown because that was like my favorite film growing up before I watched With Nell and I and before I watched actually, you know, like, you know, well, Ghostbusters is great, but, um, you know, watched film films, you know what I mean? Um, (laughs) before I got into film, that was my, that was my favorite film for a very long time. And then weirdly enough, I've seen Spy Kids 3 probably like (laughs) almost as many times because I was like a gamer. I'm still, I still play a lot of video games, but like I was a gamer growing up like quite consistently. And I, um, I loved, I just loved that 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 was set in a video game. I just thought that that was the coolest shit I'd ever seen. I, I haven't even seen Spy Kids 2. I've seen Spy Kids 1. Really? Yeah. Oh, you should definitely watch Spy Kids 2. Spy Kids 2. You reckon? Slaps. Yeah. Yeah? It's okay. Great. Interesting. I just skipped straight to 3 because, <laughs> <laughs> because I think it came out around the time that I was watching it or watching Spy Kids 1. And I was like, oh, Spy Kids 3D. Mate, Spy so, Kids 2 has one of the most iconic lines of all time ever really? spoken by any character. It's Steve Buscemi's character and he says, Steve Buscemi. Do you think, I'm pretty sure the quote goes something to the to the effect of, um, 
Do you th- this is in Spy Kids 2, by the way. <laughs> yeah. It says something to the effect of, do you think God hides in the heavens because he too is afraid of the creations that he has made? <laughs> <laughs> wow, they didn't need to go that hard. I know, Buscemi did not need to go that hard. He's great. He's, he's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd love to watch. I'd love to watch all the Spy Kids films again. I haven't seen them in many years, so I think I've only seen Spy Kids one, like once or twice. So yeah. I I rewatched Spy Kids three though, like a million times. So I'd probably say like of the three, it's probably like n- numbers wise, it's probably like Attack of the Clones. But the fact that I obsessively, like autistically, basically <laughs> watched it, like I am neurodivergent, so I can say that. Um, <laughs> I, I watched that obsessively, compulsively for weeks on the lead up to Revenge of the Sith coming out when I was eight. I was eight years old in 2005. So um, I, I loved that film, Attack of the Clones. But um, yeah, let's just go with Ghostbusters. That's the coolest cool. answer. Nice. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Very that, long-winded. That one sounds good. Um, all right. Next one is favorite animated film. Oh, my goodness me. That is a toughie. Um, I admit I, I'm not... Uh, I haven't seen as many animated films as I would like to. I, I love the medium. I like a lot of animated shows, like adult animation, like The Simpsons and BoJack Horseman and Futurama. I like that format. I think animation is a great, really underrated format. It's a great format for kids as well with stuff like Avatar, The Last Airbender. Um, you can really defy the limits of film. You can do stuff that's not physically possible. Mm that you might only otherwise be able to pull off in a novel or something. Mm-hmm. So the medium's great, and I love animate, animation. But as far as films go, I haven't seen as many as I would like. So I'd probably have to fall back on Pixar or something mm-hmm. to, to kind of um, to, to, to fill out my favourites. I do like Coraline, although it's very creepy and weird, <laughs> um, but just because I like Neil Gaiman. Yeah. Um, although picking Coraline, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's my favourite. Um, goodness me. Uh, I th- I think Megamind's underrated. Wow, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I like Megamind a lot. Megamind fans in the house. I'm a big Megamind fan. And if there are any Megaminds, um, Megaminders Megamind. listening, <laughs> if there are any Megaminders listening, um, you know, I'll buy you a beer. Um, yeah, let's go with Megamind. <laughs> Lovely, great choice. Um, is there a specific film that that is beloved that you can't stand? <sighs> Yeah, I wouldn't say beloved. I know there's a film that you love that I can't stand um, and that we're going to argue about if I mention it. Um, I think I know um, what you're going to say. You know what I'm going to say. I can't stand Midsummer. I I think it's... I love Hereditary, right? Ari Aster, I think, is great. I haven't seen Bo's Afraid, but um, I like Hereditary a lot. I think I gave Hereditary five stars. Um, But Midsummer's just pretentious and annoying. Regardless, moving on. I don't know if I don't know if I hate Midsummer. I, I hate is an extremely strong word. I dislike Midsummer. Yeah. I think it's overrated. Um, as far as that, I can't stand. Is there a beloved film that I can't stand? I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think that there's like an iconic, culturally iconic film that everybody loves that I, I vehemently hate. I don't think I hate any films. Um, I strongly dislike a lot of films. Um, yeah. <laughs> hate is a very strong word. You have to come back to me on that. But for now, let's go with Midsummer. I don't know if that's yeah. beloved. No, that, 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 that probably fits the criteria. It's a very popular film yeah. that yeah. I dislike quite a lot. Great. Um, all right. Favorite film soundtrack? Oh, God. Um, 
Well, it probably has to be Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes, my man. That's um, my answer too. It's so good. It's unbelievably good. It was a tie between that and maybe maybe one of the Harry Potter films or yeah, yeah. Star Wars or Indiana Jones or something. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just like you can hear a single note from any one of those soundtracks and just you instantly know yeah, what yeah. you're listening to. But I think Pirates is underrated. For the, it's a, they're a very popular franchise, but yeah. soundtrack-wise, I think it's underrated. I, I mean, the like main it's scene, still not spoken about in the realms of like the Star no. Wars, the Indiana Jones. Like, it, yeah. It's in that tier. Only sure. because it had... You know, it had the original trilogy and then it had several follow-up films that were bad. Yeah. That it's kind of gone down in people's estimation. Um, but those first three films, even the third film, people yeah. say it's bad, but actually it's good. It's very good, yeah. Um, it's, like, it's not as good as, as Dead Man's Chest or anything, yeah. but, like, it's, you know, it's a great trilogy. Yeah. And I think the soundtrack's really, really iconic. And I think you could play any, like, note from the main theme and people would be like, oh, my God. Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, and you know, say what you like about Johnny Depp, but um, you know, say he's one note or whatever. But um, <clears throat> like, yeah, yeah, he yeah. ties that whole that whole trilogy together, and the soundtrack is amazing. So he does absolutely, and you know, like he can, yeah, you know, he he does. Pardon the pun. Shit the bed later in the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not touch that subject. I mean, we can, but uh, he's great in those first three films. He is. He is. Um, Fantastic. All right. Next question is, who is your favorite movie villain? Oh, my goodness me. God, you're, co- you're really coming at me with the, the strong the strong ones. I think... Yeah. Can I go Can I go with, like, does it have to be a, a straight villain or can it be, like, a redeemed no, it, villain? No, whatever your criteria for villain is, antagonist. Oh, God, okay. That is such an interesting question. I think... I, th- I think I want to go for there's two there's two that I'm thinking of at the moment and one's a little bit basic uh, actually there's three one's a little bit basic <clears throat> one is um, related to the film we're about to talk to talk about and uh, it's because it's in a different film by the same director mm-hmm. and uh, and one's and one's um one's quite interesting so I think I'd have to say my basic answer would be um, Darth Vader. Mm-hmm. I think that he overrated, maybe um, basic, maybe. Um, but I mean, he's so culturally significant because uh, he's the archetypal, you know, the original big bad. Um, I think um, I'm probably forgetting a really obvious, really good one in an obscure film that I love that uh, I'm, you know, I'm going to kick myself for later. But <laughs> so it's all about immediacy. Um, my uh, my my next one would probably be um, Sam Rockwell's character in Three Billboards. Yeah. Um, I think that film is magnificent. I think that that performance is once in a career. I think that um, that could you call it a redemption arc? I don't know. Um, that redemption that he goes through is so engaging. I love it. And I've forgotten my third one. So <laughs> let's move on. That's okay. Let's go with, another, let's go with two. Good answers. All right. Just two more to go. Yep. Uh, underseen gem that you recommend? With an eye. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it fits the criteria for sure. Um, underseen gem that I would recommend? Yeah, probably with an eye. I bounce between, you know, I like to think I'm a bit of a hipster, but really my taste is, is sort of slightly mainstream. So, um, yeah, let's go with Whistle and I. Cool. Yeah, more people should watch that. Definitely should. Definitely. 
All right, and the last the last question, bit of a fun one. If you could star in any film, what would it be? It would be a Stephen Clark film. <laughs> <laughs> Bad things happen to those characters. <laughs> That's my answer. Excellent. Good choice. Good choice. Thank you. All right. So with that, now that hopefully the audience has a better understanding of, uh, of the guest on the show today. So. And um, really excited to get into the film of the week because, I mean... It's it's a it's a 2022 film that uh, got a lot of love at the time, um, and I know that had a significant impact on the both of us when we saw it, and um, it we couldn't stop talking about it for weeks. Mm. Um, and we're both massive, massive fans of everyone involved in the film, from the director to the cast. Yep. Um, so, without any further ado, let's get into talking about this film of the week: Martin Madonna's The Banshees of Inner Sharon. Lifelong friends find themselves at an impasse when one abruptly ends their relationship with alarming consequences for the both of them. And that is essentially the <laughs> most essentially. simplistic version of the plot of yep. what really is a pretty simple film yep. on its construction. Well, on, on paper, right, as you just read out, that's the entire plot. Yeah. <laughs> it is what is two, two, two friends that you, you get the sense they've been friends for a while. Yeah. Suddenly, one of them decides that he doesn't want to be friends with the other one anymore. Um, and it's such a simple premise, and yet it unpacks so much from their relationship. You know, there's there's readings that you can go into about, you know, it's a, it's a very vaguely spiritual film. You know, mm, there's a sort of yeah. ambiguous kind of magic to it. Um, there's there's elements of of like uh, dealing with mental health and and things like self-harm which is a bit of a spoiler i suppose that's okay um, we can spoil so we it's can all spoil fun. excellent well i mean yeah there's there's so many elements of that of that film that spin off from that very simple idea and mm-hmm. it's that's that's part of the genius i think yeah absolutely um i mean yeah like we say it is a very simple film it's i mean in in construction it's little more than a platonic breakup and um, I mean, the film also, what I really admire about the film is that it wastes no time getting into the central conflict of the film. I mean, straight off the bat, I mean, Patrick just goes to Com's house and he's rejected for an afternoon pint. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of films would have potentially not wasted, but spent a lot of time maybe building that relationship mm. um, and then working up to the breakup. Yes. But I think that the sense of urgency and really great... Um, rhythm and mm. and pace of the film is really inbuilt yep. in just starting us at the at the start of the conflict yep absolutely and that is i think also another stroke of genius from mcdonough because as you say a lot of uh, you know if this was you know made by a bog standard hollywood director you know we'd spend the first half an hour building up this relationship you know we'd see them go to the pub we'd see them laugh and be friends you maybe get a little hint of frustration from from colin but um you know you 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 kind of you'd be laying the groundwork and doing doing a lot of exposition mm-hmm. essentially and world building which isn't by no means a bad thing uh, in storytelling but um i think that you know 
someone once told me that um you know when you tell a story it should be about the most interesting point in those characters lives um yeah. and that is that is a well-known piece of advice for, for anyone who writes whether you're a screenwriter a novelist whatever you know a poet whatever um you know you should always write about the most interesting times because if you're not writing about the most interesting times in those people's lives why aren't we seeing that because yeah. it's the most interesting times in those people's lives so we're we watching it yeah. well, yes we're starting immediately at the beginning of the most interesting point in probably both columns and power X lives because um we immediately start with like um the relationship breakdown and it also adds an element of mystery to the relationship because we don't know what they were like when they were actually friends and we don't know you know a lot of people in the film talk about um column not acting like himself or acting differently or acting depressed um you know we never see him you know in another state of mind so yeah we uh we, we there's an element of mystery there and, and ambiguity to the relationship which i really think adds to the tension yeah i think it definitely adds to our um because our natural allegiance with Padraig, I think, because uh, I think that um, as an audience member, you're definitely supposed to feel a lot of sympathy for his character, yeah. specifically at the beginning of the film. We do, we um, do. And, and the film does a great job about getting you on side. And um, you make a great point about, like, you know, the, the, sen- the sense of urgency that it creates because I'm just thinking back to all of other Martin Madonna's films and they all start pretty much at the central the beginning of the central conflict I mean yep. three billboards what's she doing she's putting up she's the three putting billboards up the billboards in Bruges, in Bruges. what are we doing they're in Bruges we're, we're... <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's the film exactly yeah. so um, it's, it's definitely something that's a bit of a trademark of Madonna's work yep. and um, he immediately jumps into the most relevant point yeah uh, in the story you know once things it kind of feels like <clears throat> in the best way possible um, we've kind of skipped if you imagine it like a TV episode <laughs> Mm-hmm. We've skipped the pre-credits setup and we're yeah. straight into the action, but yeah. in the best way because every all the gaps are filled in throughout, and there's not much to fill in because the premise of each film, of Madonna's films, maybe except with the exception of Three Billboards, is quite simple. Mm-hmm. Um, so the premise of in Bruges is just that an assassination has gone wrong and they're hiding out. Um, Banshee's Vinishiran. Uh, one friend doesn't want to be friends with the other. Three Billboards there's been a murder and the mother wants to find out what actually happened it's a little more complicated than the other two yeah. but um obviously you've got seven psychopaths which i haven't seen uh, i don't think you've seen either um but you know i'll report back once i have seen it and yeah. see if it fits the thesis <laughs> that would really be bad if it was the one film <laughs> that really screwed up really had a theory. lot of setup yes <laughs> well i know i know they kidnap a dog um right. i know that that's the premise of the film so yeah. um and there's seven of them maybe they're all getting Diagnose as psychopaths. <laughs> Possibly, film. yes. Um, well, yeah. Just, just to, I, I guess, probably one of the best ways to talk about this film is to talk about Madonna because he is sort of the master of this film, and it is such, such an, such an encapsulation of, of him as a director and his mm. career up until this point. I think. Um, yep. And his ability to strike this comedic tone without drowning out the darker themes of yep. these stories. Um, I mean, like one at one second you're laughing with his characters, and then the other, the next second you're sort of deeply analysing their decisions yeah. and how they compare with your own worldviews. Absolutely, and that, that's my favourite thing about Madonna's films is that he's just. I think you said it in one of your reviews is that he's just the king of happy sad, mm-hmm. um, which is in what as you say in one scene he's making you laugh, and the next he's breaking your heart, and those things don't alienate you because they're happening one after the other the tones are so successfully blended yeah 
um, it's almost indistinguishable. You can't picture the films without those tonal shifts. Like you couldn't, you couldn't play Banshees like either as a comedy or as a like straight drama. Like yeah. it's, it leans more towards drama certainly, but there are comedic moments mm-hmm. and there are there are moments that uh, make you laugh and um, there are jokes. So it strikes that balance so very well, and uh, that is for me why he's probably my f- one of, if not my favorite, directors because. He is, uh, yeah, that that tonal mixing is something that I think I've looked for in films since I started watching films. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, a film that can, can entertain you, uh, can make you think, can make you cry, can make you smile. You know, the whole emotional range is on display in 110 minutes. And yeah. it's like perfect. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um I guess we should sort of get into talking a little more about the film specifically then. Um, uh, something that I wanted to point out from the get-go is uh, I really the setting for this film is incredibly important. Obviously, we're talking about Irish actors. We're talking about yep. an Irish director Absolutely. with a very distinctly Irish setting. Um, mm-hmm. but, mo- but more than that, how it plays into the film. And I've been thinking about this more and more since the film came out. And um, setting the film in 1923, obviously during the Irish Civil War, yep. it sort of sets up this great mirrored dynamic for Colm and Podrick. Yeah. Like yesterday they were on the same side and today they're not. And that sort of yes. is obviously no no yep. coincidence, um, no coincidence. That the story is set up in that way. There's even a line in the film that references directly that. I think yep. the um, the uh, the police officer character, um, <clears throat> uh, the father of um, yep. Barry Keoghan's character, yep. Dominic, yep. Uh, he's... He, he, he has is a bit of a throwaway joke line, but it strikes kind of at the heart of that conflict. He's like, you know, I, he says, um, "I wish when I I miss when we were all on the same side fighting the English." Um, you know, it was much simpler back then. To, in reference to the Civil War, yeah. And obviously, you can read that as Colum and, and um, Powerick's relationship, right? You know, you, yeah. you miss the time when it was simpler and they were on the same side. Um, yeah. And it's 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 great. And you, you can easily miss something like that as a throwaway line. but Yeah, uh, it, it just all goes into the, the deeper thought that, you know, someone like yeah. Madonna puts into his films. I mean, the conflict mm-hmm. can even be read um, as relevant for Colm's character, I think. Like, you, you're talking about a character who's wasting his life away on an island where nothing's happened. Yeah. When there's a major historical event taking place just a few miles away, you know, and just that, that feeling of just being out of touch or... Um, sort yeah. of wasting your life away is very prevalent for Colm. Absolutely. Colm's. I mean, it, it's it's the... We find out later in the film that that is essentially why he's wanted to end his friendship. It's because he feels that he... Well, there's an, there's a sense of two things. There's a sense that he believes his life is wasting away and, you know, he's not a young man. You know, he's played by an older actor. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how old Brendan Gleeson is, but, you know, he's looking good for whatever age he yeah, is. Probably his 70s, I would think. You would think that old? Think wow, so. I would have guessed... Well, he is looking very good then. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have guessed maybe maybe early 60s um anyway um he's uh you know he thinks he's speaking about his time you know wasting away and you also get the sense that he thinks that he's above you know where he lives and he's above he sort of kind of has ideas above his station right and that's that's kind of a theme for several characters in in the film that's that's a theme for Kerry Condon's character as well Mm -hmm. Siobhan um Parikh's sister yeah she actually is somewhat above her station. She actually is smart and, and, and needs to get out of there. And she does, obviously, towards the end of the film. Um, whereas Colm is, you know, you know, he thinks that he's a grand composer and he thinks that he's an artist on, you know, he references Beethoven and, and Beethoven and a few other composers. But realistically, 
you know he's writing a tune for students in a pub on an island with about 100 people on it so he's yeah. um you know he's not he's not exactly a, a beethoven level composer but he thinks that he is and that's you know plays into some of the other delusions that he that he exemplifies throughout the film <laughs> Many. So, <laughs> quite a lot yeah it, it's, it's brilliant and i think i think that that is obviously a major understanding Combs character is a major part of understanding what's going on in the film because there are many interpretations of of what's happening to someone like Colm. You know, you can call it like a late life crisis. Mm. You can call it sort of like um, a bit of delusion or rudeness or whatever whatever you can call it. Um, But he is absolute in his pursuit of this goal of shutting out Podrick and essentially working on his art. Um, Yep. And and, and that's what makes it a great film. I mean, at no point... In this entirety of this film, does he budge an inch? No, not even. Well, there's there's one line in the film where he does he does seem to have, and there's a couple of occasions where he shows sympathy for mm-hmm. for Perrick, and he does after the. Uh, there's two points I'm thinking of, and I don't know if I think you're right. I don't think he ever wavers in his um, in his goal. At least. In his goal, yeah. never. He does show a bit of humanity and a bit of sympathy towards Perrick, and he does acknowledge on several occasions that he what he is doing is is bad and mean um i think after the um after the the scene in the pub straight after the 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 line where the policeman says that he wishes they were all on the same side yep. and parik has his drunken outburst yeah um Fantastic i think that, that leads us into the third act or maybe that's the maybe that's the climax of the second um but yeah um that that's a great scene and then straight away after that i i think colin says i think i like him again because that's the most interesting he's been in years or something like that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so he does budge a little bit but um it, i think that's more about i think that's more shock at the outburst and, yeah. and, and a reaction rather than an actual uh introspective look into you know what he's doing definitely and i, I think that there's a lot of mystery around you know the the true goal or true what what Colm actually wants out of this does he does he want does he actually just want to focus on his art or is mm. he trying to inspire the people around him namely Podrick to to lead a more uh interesting interesting life. and yeah. uh and thoughtful life yeah um I, th- I think that's a really interesting interpretation mm. I mean um interesting that's, a, that's an interesting way to think about it yeah, yeah, definitely. Because um, I mean, I, I think I think that that scene specifically is really it's a great scene. It's one of the standout scenes of the whole film. Um, it, specifically, I believe there's a line in there where um, Gleason says something along the lines of, "I would, I would rather um, be remembered um, than and, and basically be an asshole my entire life rather yeah. rather than." show kindness and be and be yes. forgotten in an instant yeah and um and it's followed up very poignantly by Padraig's probably his best line delivery of the whole film from Colin Farrell where he he says well um I remember my mum and my sister's kindness yeah. um and I remember I will remember my sister I will remember my sister and yeah. that's like the that's just the, so the beautiful the whole film wrapped up in in a, in a line and in a sentence and um yeah I think that's that's a very important part of the film um mm specifically for me stands out oh i i, I think i you know that film's always that uh, scene is always on my mind i think i don't think it's ever left my mind since i walked out of the screw you know our very first viewing of the first uh, first time i saw it like that yeah. that scene is so poignant and it's obviously um farrell's full acting chops yeah. on display um 
and it's you know it, it kind of gives me goosebumps every time because that mm. is your you know in in a <clears throat> if this were an action film you know that would be your uh, <laughs> that would be your shootout that would be your uh, climax moment yeah. of the second act you know that would be like your big dramatic twist reveal you know that you know that's kind of where it sits in in filmmaking um and how you know pedigree yeah, yeah absolutely and, and, and in method and things like that so and it's it's tremendous so i i love it and it begs that it begs sort of that question which i think the, the film does ask you which is what responsibility to our friends um and family do we have and and how do you find that balance because i think it is hard mm. uh, um i mean i mean obviously calm obviously distinguishes that he doesn't want to be friends with Patrick anymore and he yeah. feels that his sadness that he's going to feel from that is not his responsibility yeah. um whereas yeah. on the opposite side of the spectrum you have um Kerry Condon's character Shabon who who does also want to leave um and in doing so is going to leave Patrick as well yeah um but feels a lot of dread she about does. it yeah. and you and, sort of see yeah. two sides of the coin and this is causing her a lot of pain yeah um whereas calm seems to be relatively pain-free yep. um in his thinking yep. well there's an interesting line um from dominic in the film where he <laughs> he mentions he says uh the first evening after the uh, breakup if you like quite early in the film he mentions um he says didn't look like colin was uh, he says something like didn't look like Colin was very sad. It looked like a great weight had been lifted from his shoulders. Yeah. So that you're quite right when you say um, <laughs> when you say that you know he's pain free, you know, he's footloose and fancy free. You know he's very happy yeah. to be um, <laughs> to be shot of his 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 friend. And you know it's always interesting. I, I actually I rewatched the film last night in preparation for this podcast, and I I I, I was struck by something throughout the film, and that the people that Colin remains friendly with don't actually say anything all that more interesting or insightful or intelligent than Powerick does. You know, they're all very similar because they all live on a small island. They all have very similar lived experience, one would assume. Um, You know, it's not like any of them are particularly, you know, the smartest person uh, on the island and the most interesting person, you know, if you were to go by someone who, you know, is well-read and speaks well and is insightful and intelligent would be would be Siobhan she would be the most probably the most quote-unquote intelligent person and interesting person on that island at least I think she's probably the only one who would you know want to have a conversation with you yeah <laughs> um and uh, and Colin on several occasions dismisses her out of hand uh yeah. in favor of you know the slightly dim-witted barman and the you know disgusting police officer so yeah um you know, I I think you know we speak a lot about Colum's delusions, and obviously that comes to a head. And we haven't even mentioned this yet that he yeah. cuts off his finger, well, cuts off one finger, and then four four more later, and removes all the fingers on his left hand. I think. Yeah. Um, and like, you know that's just. I mean, obviously that speaks to self harm, and he, he references depression when he goes into confession with his priest, um, who uh, you know who who. He speaks about his depression and his despair. So that this, as I said before, there's hints of mental illness and hints of delusion uh, from Colum. Um And as you say, you know, um, that's not helping his music at all because then he can't play the fiddle by the end of the film. So, yeah. um, you know, he's 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 doing it not necessarily, I think, out of a desire to create art. I think that's an excuse to um, indulge in his into his poor mental health. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I personally feel like when you read into Combs' actions as a whole, when, when you see the entirety of the film, you 
you do see a sympathetic character who who I think deep down desperately did want this life of you know um, being an artist and being recognized and remembered and creating mm. something truly great um, but potentially through his own doing um, has has lived a bit of a misled life and maybe didn't achieve all he wanted to achieve and um, yeah. I, I think it's I think it's t- you're totally right to bring up his actions separate from dismissing Padraig because he continues to go to the bar the same bar that he's stuck in um, he continues to surround himself with dimwits essentially and just regular people yep. who are obviously just having similar meaningless conversations with him absolutely um, but he tends to he's taking it out on Padraig because I think that Padraig is a representation of of a sort of simple life yes. which he has now come to resent but Padraig has find found bliss in the simplicity yep. of life and joy and and the the regularity and um, tearing that away from him is extremely um, extremely uh, upsetting for him um, and, and it's really interesting because you know you've got one character desperately trying to hold on to the status quo um, for some safety and the other seeking um, sort of shelter and safety in yeah. in in a new concept of life and a new Absolutely. way of looking at life yeah. and um, and it makes them both desperately unha- desperately unhappy yep I mean by the end of the film that they're, they're you know they are they're two very broken people mm-hmm. um you know one physically and one mentally yeah. um you know they are you know it's ruined it ruined both of their lives you know um you know there's uh, the pride and joy parix pride and joy his his little donkey is dead <laughs> jenny and uh um, he wouldn't put it outside <laughs> and um you know colin has lost you know five of his ten fingers so he's um He's not doing very well, and uh, you're right. And that's such an in- interesting insight. You know, I don't think, I don't think I've heard it put so succinctly. So that was very well done. Um, I uh, I think the idea that Colm has come to resent his simple life, um, and you know, is seeking some kind of agency and trying to take some kind of action, yeah, uh, to shake himself free of his quote unquote simple, undesirable, wasted life. Um, you know nothing about his life changes. You yeah. know after he cuts off Powerick, like the, he, as you say, goes to the same pub, keeps the same other friends, goes to church on Sunday, plays his fiddle. You know he says that he writes more, but you know I've, we don't see that. We don't see that. You know we see him write one song. Mm-hmm. You know throughout the course of the film, and yeah. one can assume that he's written you know at least one song while he was still friends with Powerick. Yeah, so, he would have had time to do that. <laughs> I don't think you know, and I mean, yeah, I think. I think it's right. I think rather than reflecting on himself and how he has spent his life, he attacks one of the people closest to him. Because we don't see, you know, Colin with any other family. You know, we don't see him with any siblings. We don't see him with any children or, you know, any spouse or anything. So he is very much alone and it seems like you know parik may have been his closest friend and closest closest person in the world so um you know to, to, to cut that relationship off um because it no longer aligns with who you want to be um you know that's that's probably the most self-destructive thing he could think of doing of course it's destructive to, to parik but um you know he wants to you know it kind of all feeds back into that self-harm so yeah yeah Absolutely, and that all comes to a head, obviously, with the ending of the film, and yep, and the burning of his house, and the burning of his house, and um, I think that's probably a representation for what we're talking about, which is essentially um, a man that has sort of self-destructed his life in 
in disgust of what it's become, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and that is sort of the embodiment of Combs' character mm. is sort of destroying everything that he has yeah. um, because it isn't what yeah. he desired deep down. Mm. And I think that's that's one way of approaching life, right? Whereas um, whereas Podrick's um, approach is, 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 is far different to, to Combs. Yeah. Um, and he, he deals with a lot of loss and grief and coming to realise that his life is changing. Um, and he, he does actively seek to, to, yep. to keep it in a he lot does. of ways. Um, yep. But in the end, he, he succumbs to, to, despair, to acceptance. Yeah, yep, yep, he does. He accepts it in the end and he, um, you know, takes his revenge. Yep. Um, some might say an overreaction. Uh, well, I, 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 th- <laughs> I, think, I think it's an equal measure to, to, to Combs... Um, De- desperate attempts and yep. and sort of ridiculous attempts. That's a good point. Yeah, but it's sort of in the end they both sort of they both have their have their their violent and yeah say. I, I well, guess it's very interesting in that both attempts to uh, both drastic attempts to take quote unquote revenge on the other column, taking revenge for Parik to continue to dare to speak to him and Parik taking revenge for Colum, you know, ignoring him and making his life pretty sad. Mm-hmm. Um both directly hurt column you know there's nothing <clears throat> apart from the death of the donkey which is very sad um you know and that was an accident you know yeah. that was not intended not the fingers um not the fingers <laughs> you know not a healthy snack boys and girls <laughs> don't eat human fingers um don't eat anything that comes from a human um <laughs> um you know they're both of those acts both of those purposeful acts you know the cutting off of the ha- uh, the fingers and the uh burning of the house are why that's why i think i like the self-harm angle for mm. column is because you know he allows that to happen to him he lets uh Parik burn down his home <clears throat> and he seems to contemplate staying inside at one yes. point but then obviously doesn't yeah um and uh and then that's you know that's where we leave these characters is after after these drastic measures are taken and and you know, nothing has changed in their lives except internally and except, you know, um, you know, all this damage has done, but there's there's no fruits of either of their efforts. You know, it's a it's a fruitless conflict, probably mm-hmm. much like, you know, wars, as we mentioned, there's a lot of parallels with the the, the civil yeah. war um, of the time. So yep. we uh, we see that and we see we see how fruitless war is. We see how fruitless, um, you know, the, these kinds of break breakups can be. Um so there's, there's a lot to read into yeah ultimately yeah that that final you know image of the two of them you know sort of sitting down together sort of mm. at this i guess acceptance or, or peace yeah. treaty of some sort yeah is, i mean is is i guess uh just a an encapsulation of two men who mm. who desperately struggled against their fates but in the end nobody can run from their life right yeah absolutely well uh, I, I think you know, despite what Parik says at the end of the film, which is this isn't over. Yeah. Um, I do think it is. Yeah. For the two of them, I think narratively it is. Um, you know, that there's there's that really lovely. It's not the final shot of the film, but it's one of the last couple of shots, and it's, it's the it's a, it's the character we haven't really spoken about is the the strange old lady who walks around mm. the island with a with her. Well, she doesn't have the stick. That's that's Dominic's stick until she uses it to pull him out of the lake. Yeah. Um she's kind of sitting outside on the only surviving piece of furniture um watching them on the beach and then we see them separated by her yeah you know, the shot separate you know you've got column on one side and and um 
Porrick on the other, and with he walked with her in the center of the, yeah. the frame. So it's almost as if they're, you know, and she seems to narratively represent death or, or some kind of afterlife or something sort of slightly related to spirituality. So her predicting the deaths of the donkey and Dominic, and then her, <clears throat> you know, being all mysterious and weird and walking around the island, um, you know, her death separating them forever mm. um you know the death of their friendship the death yeah. of their of this donkey the death of uh column's house if you like mm-hmm. um see i i, I the think the column's ambitions of yep. his dreams right yeah, absolutely always. there's a lot of death at the end there both literally and figuratively you know two two characters well one character and an animal i mean not that the animal isn't a character mm. but you know two characters have died the ambitions of column have died the the simple blissful life that Parik had led for however many years up until that point is yeah. dead. Um, their friendship is dead and they're, they're separated by this wall of death, you know, visually forever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're both going to be, you know, ghosts or banshees on inner sheer. And if you like, yeah, of course, um, which is what column calls his, his song. Yeah. I, um, I, I think you bring up a great point there and there's probably one character that I think we should really talk about before we sort of wrap up with the film talk here. I, th- I think uh, we haven't really talked on him, but it's great, is um, Barry Keegan's Dominic, because yeah. I think that it's no coincidence that we're talking here about a character who who pursues his dream, mm. and when he can't live with the rejection or the failure of that dream, takes his own life. Yep. And I think that that is, uh, that is displayed as, as one option or one way of, of, of looking at the situation, which is Absolutely. obviously in direct relation to Colm and or Podrick's dreams slash ambitions for their lives. Absolutely. And um, it's viewed in an incredibly sad way. Mm. Um, obviously, suicide is obviously incredibly sad in any Tragic, circumstance. Absolutely. Um, but particularly um, with Dominic, it's through the eyes of the film, it's um, it's it's entirely upsetting. I think, I think that you go through the film of watching this character sort of be a bit of a a bit of a bumbling idiot um, and he obviously provides yeah. a lot of comedic relief throughout he the does. film and Barry Keegan's hilarious and creepy as always he's great um, but what that character really drives home in, in the third act with his sort of death is is this tremendous sadness of, of the, the fleetingness of life and um, you know obviously he comes from horrific circumstances with his with his own that relationship with his having, father yeah, having been abused having and, been abused you know his father obviously plays a larger role in the film as well as the the scene i think the island's only policeman that we see yeah um you know that that is a tragic despite his tragic circumstances he does obviously bring a lot of energy and, and most of the comedy to the film well, yeah, his, his most iconic line in the film, well, there goes that dream, is sort of <laughs> yeah. played off for a laugh in the moment. But yeah. upon reflection, five minutes later, when you realize what that yeah. actually signified, yeah. is one of the darkest lines in the film. Absolutely. And I mean, if nothing else encapsulates the brilliant writing of Martin Madonna, it's yeah. a line that literally makes you laugh, but is horrifically upsetting yeah. upon reflection. Absolutely. Well, once you realize you know, where he dies, you know, yeah. he, you know, I mean, he approaches Kerry Condon and confesses his... I don't know if you could call it love, but strange infatuation. This <laughs> yeah. infatuation, this yeah. infatuation he has with her, and this ambition he has to uh, to be romantically involved with her. Um, you know, once once that you know once you notice that where that happens happens at the lake where he dies and he walks off screen, you're like, oh well, he's 
you know, he's gone from the frame. But when you, you look at it later, obviously, it's very, very clear that he went and then took his own life and pretty much immediately afterwards. So, yeah. Um, but also just the dream itself, you know, that he talks of, you know, like there goes that dream, the dream of, you know, being with this woman that he loves mm. and, um, and, and fa- in this life that he's fantasized about. I mean, it's, it's in direct comparison to, to Colm's dream of being an artist yep. or um, Padraig's dream of having this very simple life with beloved with all his friends and what happens when a dream dies. And yep. I think that we're presented with lots of options throughout the film of, of, of what happens in that situation. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's all, as you say, it demonstrates the genius of Madonna in that he you know all of these small narrative threads are they speak to the main thesis of the of the film right and that you know the dream of each of our characters you know f- none of, nobody achieves their dream really mm. except maybe Siobhan yeah but even then you know her dream of having her brother come and join her on the mainland is not realized yeah. he chooses to stay on Inishir in, in sadness her dream comes at a, as, at, a, at a consequence at a heavy cost she has to leave everything behind in order to have some kind of life away from this strange island so yeah. um yeah we um we you know none of our characters really end up in a very good place and yet there's a certain there's a cert there's a certain reassurance in that you know there's a certain certainty um of you know of where our characters end up because we see each of them acting in a way that is you know i mean they all act against their best interests really and then you know we see them reap what what they sow but um yeah the seeing them end up in the places where they end up uh, and since they all have very similar fates is very it's very nice storytelling i like it yeah, very very secular story thing. It's excellent. Um, just to finish up on the film itself, um, did you have a have a favorite scene that you wanted to shout out? Um, oh, I, I've already spoken about the bar scene. I think that that's you know that's probably the best. I really really love that scene. I think an underrated scene that I I think about quite a lot when I think about this film, and it really struck me in the cinema when I when I saw it. And it's not a scene I I don't think I've spoken to you about this before when I've spoken about this film, but it's when Siobhan is on the boat leaving the island yep. and she's waving up to Porig on the hill and the old lady, I think her name is Mrs. McCormack, is standing just off to the side. She's always out of focus mm. in this scene. We never... we we never She's got a very um, identifiable silhouette so we know what she looks like out of focus. Yep. <clears throat> and she's standing out of focus and I think she's holding the stick that she would later use to fish Dominic out of the lake. Um... And I, th- I think it might be the last time we see her before before we see her at the very end. And she's just standing there. And we see Siobhan's face change when she notices that the old woman's there. And, and it's just, it's like she's realizing something. And I think that, you know, if this old woman represents death in the film, narratively, you know, I think it might be Siobhan realizing that she's kind of condemning her brother to death you know by leaving him on this island yeah she was kind of all he had so realizing that he's going to live and die there now for however many years into the future you know she's realizing that and i love that 
Yeah, that's my interpretation at least. And I, I you know, yeah. that's my that's probably my favorite. Yeah. And the dreams come at a cost, which fits yeah. in absolutely with what with we've the talked whole about thing. the whole yeah. time. Absolutely. So it's absolutely a fantastic film. And um, if anyone's listening so far that hasn't seen the film, sorry for spoiling it, <laughs> but uh, definitely go check it out. And um, maybe anyone that, that has seen the film and loves it, um, absolutely go back and give it a revisit because yeah. um, absolutely is... one of both of our favorites of, of the last year as of well. Of the last so. year, yeah. One of my, probably my favorite of, of of 2022 when it when it came out um i love martin mcdonough i will i will i would watch if that man made car advertisements i would watch if he <laughs> you know, yeah. i would watch i would watch him you know anything that he produced and he's a fantastic film filmmaker and the cast we adore everyone in the cast and just a tremendous film and it and it benefits a lot from rewatch i think i've rewatched it a few times and um you know there's a lot that you pick up on several times it's it's one of those films that um it's almost it's almost compulsory to watch it at least twice because there's there's so much to, to dissect and to understand upon subsequent viewings so check it out brilliant brilliant all right so just to finish up on the podcast here tom um just wanted to sort of i guess speak about some things that probably you and i talk about fairly frequently um sure. but i always always think it's I, I, I think I think it's always important in the context of talking about storytelling and and how we understand storytelling to to unpack our current understanding of of, of where things are at and um, how we interpret ourselves as artists. We're both aspiring artists and, and hope to have long and fruitful careers in in the industry of storytelling in general. Yep. Um, so just a few questions here, my good friend. Sure. Um, tell me a little bit about your passion for cinema and storytelling, and um, where do you think it came from? That's interesting. I um, I've always been a writer since I was very little. I used to write little sort of fan fictions and stories when I was a, a little guy. Um, I um, I don't know where it came from. You know, I, there's nobody in my family really who's had any sort of huge love for cinema or writing or anything. You know, I've always written small short stories. I've always tried to write novels and things. Um, so it's very interesting i'm primarily a novel writer and short story writer um but i suppose my love for film came out of you know a film is arguably the most popular piece of uh, most popular art form we have on the planet um you know it's it's something that maybe maybe television is slightly more popular these days but you know film has historically been very very popular um, among all peoples um I think just being around film, watching a lot of films when I was a kid, um, understanding that, you know, the writing that I was doing in my spare time, actually, there were people behind these moving pictures that actually, you know, you know, despite behind all the people with the cameras, even behind all the actors, there was a singular brain often, you know, coming up with these ideas and these stories. And that's, that's where my love of screenwriting came from primarily. And I, I, you know, obviously, I, as I said, I'm primarily a writer of prose, but I, I've dabbled in screenwriting, and um, you know, I, I took several screenwriting classes or sort of screenwriting adjacent classes at university at one point or another, and I've done some screenwriting. So I, I think it's just always been part of my life. I, I don't remember a time when I wasn't. I mean, we always, you know, as artists, we we fall out with our art, and I've probably had a few years in my teenage years where I thought I was a bit too cool for it, but. Um, you know, I, uh, I, I've always been a, a writer. I've always been a bit of a nerd about it. So I think I don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in writing. Great. Um, 
Do you think that engaging um, and analyzing art has helped to enhance or shape your worldview and um, and how you look at humanity? Absolutely, yeah. I don't I don't think you could meet a creative person where that answer isn't absolutely yes because um, art, you know, as Hitchcock very famously said that uh, art is life with the dull bits cut out. You know, it's very much, um, particularly cinema. You know, you look at something like you know i don't know you look at the banshees of inishiran and and it, it speaks to so many parts of our lives and and you know so many things that you can relate to and obviously it's on a hyper realized and dramatized level um but i think that looking and understanding you know film and drama as the human condition really helps us relate to our own experiences and that's where the best art is formed is in relatability and in looking at films and novels and you know you know infomercials on the television you look at anything and draw some kind of you know sympathy or some kind of empathy from it so um i think that you know some of the um some of the deepest revelations i've had about my own life and about the people i love and the people i know and the world around me have been aided by art and by film you know a lot it's it's a great tool for for understanding the world because it is just life with the dull bits cut out brilliant great answer um well and adjacent to that what types of stories um are you particularly drawn to to reading or watching um and do you think that is reflected in your own writing i tend to be drawn to films that and and any kind of book or you know whatever any kind of story that um I, th- I think relatability, as I said before, is a big one. So if I can find an element of a story, you know, it doesn't have to be a, a character that I identify with because they've, you know, had a similar upbringing to me or whatever, or a similar worldview. But, you know, if there's just one element of that character that I can I can grab onto uh, as relatable, that I, I'm drawn to that. So I'm drawn to Withnall and I, my favourite film, um, because of the characters mainly, and because of the main character... Or the main two characters are very tragic characters and one's very hopeful in the end and one's quite despairing so you know looking at that and and one of my other favorite films train spotting is very similar in its ending in that you know there's a bit of hope there and and a bit of ambition and it's you know even if you are you know just a normal person there's there's you know you can do something and make something of yourself so um i'm also very drawn to um stories that take place over a great deal of time you know I, I really like I call it next generational storytelling in that you know stories that span several generations because it's very you know it, it kind of gets me a bit you know I kind of well up when I you know stories about family or found family and generational storytelling you know I get that really emotionally affects me you know something like um, Star Trek the next generation for example is obviously a next generation story in itself because it's you know 100 or so years later after the original series and um you know it's a new generation of of um starfleet you know people and then we watch this crew grow in love and become a found family and you know over seven seasons of an original series four films and then three seasons of a modern series you, know, yeah. you kind of watch these people change over decades and i really love that um I'm trying to think of another good example. Probably another good example would be uh, the Legend of Korra, the uh, mm. 
the sequel series to Avatar The Last Airbender. I like The Legend of Korra a lot. So I don't like it as much as I like Avatar, obviously. Um, and it gets a lot of flack because it's got a wonky season or two. But, um, you know, I think its core ambition and what it's going for and what it does achieve, I think, in the last you know two seasons um, is that kind of uh, generational storytelling. You know, telling the next generation that world anyway lends itself really well to, to generational storytelling and it's kind of why i like lord of the rings and game of thrones and stuff like that is because um wow you know there's there's so much um i also would like to amend my uh my favorite villain answer from before <laughs> i remembered i read two others i wanted to say Gollum and i wanted to say terence fletcher from whiplash nice <laughs> fletcher was the one i was thinking of that i said i forgot great answer. anyway yeah. moving moving on i just <laughs> reminded myself so if you want to edit that in at the beginning you can. <laughs> too much effort uh, it's going at the end all right well if you listened to this far to my real answer to that question i appreciate it mm-hmm. um yeah, I think I think I'm drawn to those kinds of reflective stories. I think is the best the best way to put it. You know, one of my favorite books is The Name of the Wind by Patrick mm. Rothfuss and that's very reflective. You know, it's about a man I mean that series is about a man's life and um you know, it's unfinished at the moment obviously, but um it's uh, it's about a man's life and it's it's very interesting. It's obviously set in a fantasy world, but it has those core elements something like The Legend of Korra has is that it's like you you've watched these characters and these people you know grow up through their lives and that that kind of storytelling really appeals to me fantastic man um and just to end off on a bit of a bit of an open-ended question i suppose but i always find it interesting just to talk about this with people um where do you think art is going in your opinion are we headed for disaster are we headed for a bit of a new era um Mm. um you know with all the 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 intricacies of 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 and additions of of new types of of storytelling new ways of telling stories and um the fear around things about like ai and that yeah, sort of thing yeah. um and the relevancy of of the traditional artist um what, what's your what's your thinking on all of this i think you would if you'd have asked me that question a few years ago um probably probably about the age of 20 19 or 20 or so i, I probably would have been quite negative i probably would have been quite despairing um there are things to worry about Mm -hmm. you know to get real for a second you know we're we recently just had a writers and actors strike end um through successful negotiations by both both unions um and i applaud that um i applaud the efforts of the actors and the unions and the writers um you know i and and obviously there's a lot of films out there these days that you know many auteur famous auteurs have referred to as you know popcorn films or not real films and um you know there are those kinds of throwaway films that do attract the masses and make millions of dollars and you know i think that that and ai and and stuff like that is very scary you know to look at it as someone who wants to be an artist and tell authentic stories and who loves you know challenging interesting films and media you know it's it's sad and scary to look at that and think, you know, this could be the death of, you know, our greatest love and this could be the end of something really special. But I think that the spirit of the artist is something that's so close to humanity. You know, we've been telling and retelling and writing down stories for millennia, you know. Um, we've been telling stories since before recorded language. Um so I think that the spirit of the artist and the spirit of the original storyteller will 
I hope, transcend phases and fads and new technologies and you know an AI bot can can you know I have no doubt that in a few decades time an AI bot can pump out 100 novels in 0.2 seconds <laughs> but you know I don't think that you know technically it may be good it may follow conventions and tropes very well and it may be a well-written story that a robot can write um, but I don't I don't I think there will be something missing you know obviously the famous expression of write what you know is you know unhelpful sometimes but also so true because you know we, we take our own perspective into what we write and you know if I were to write a story and you were to write a story you know we'd have different ways we want to take it because of our experience because of who we are so I think yeah if you'd have asked me when I was a cynical 21 year old I'd have I'd have been very upset and very despairing and very melodramatic but I think I, I, I think you know that you will never kill art you know you will never kill an artist truly um, what you leave behind even after you and I are dead you know what we've written and what we've made will remain and I think that is really the point you know is to leave a legacy or leave something so yeah I, I, I'm hopeful I think art will always be here and I think the artist will all will live forever and um, you know I think that although it will get harder and although we will see, you know, undoubtedly, uh, you know, another hundred years of superhero films and AI scripts and, you know, God knows what else and and, <laughs> and deep faked uh, CGI plastered dead actors faces onto robots, you know, we'll see all of that, I am certain. But you will never, ever, 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 ever kill something as beautiful as the Banshees of Inishirin. You know, that will always remain. And there will always, as long as there's a person, you know, as long as there's one artist alive on this earth, um, you know, things like that will still be made. Perfect, mate. I literally couldn't have put it better myself. Um, yeah, no, so glad we got to have this discussion. Mm. And um, yeah, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Tom. Thank you. No, my pleasure, uh, Steve. Absolutely, my friend. Um, you'll be you'll be coming back i'm sure there's lots of films that we plan on talking about Absolutely. so um, it'll be my pleasure we'll, um we'll, we'll we'll hear from tom i am sure again very very soon um in the meantime tom is there any way that the that the good audience members can find you the great and the good you can find me on letterboxd at thomas underscore blake t-h-o-m-a-s underscore b-l-a-k-e that is my name um and that's that's the best place to find my film opinions yep. and things and uh i don't want to plug the app formerly known as Prince, but I would like to <laughs> plug uh, my threads, which is uh, at Thomas L. Blank. Fantastic. All right. And uh, thanks you, thank you so much to you, the audience member, for joining in for another episode of Dramaturgically. Um, I've been your host, Stephen Clark. You can find me at Stephen Clark on Letterboxd um, for all my relevant film reviews. And you can stay up to date on my podcasts and um, listen to it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or any of your good old podcast providers. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Leave a, uh, a comment if you'd like to hear about um, a specific film or anything, any questions for the podcast. And until next time, guys, have a great day. Goodbye. Goodbye.